safer sex. Intercourse. Condoms. Sexually transmitted infection. HIV. HIV. Sexual health. Treatment. Prevention. Sexual attraction. Sexually transmitted infection. Contraceptive. Sexual health. Sexual health. Hi and welcome back. You're listening to Heather on the Sydney Sexual Health Centre podcast, where we talk about all things related to sexual health. Today, we're talking about one of those topics that may not seem like it is related to our core business of preventing and treating sexually transmitted infections, but when you look a little closer, you see that it's quite closely linked after all. September is Gynecological Cancer Awareness Month. Gynecological cancers include cervical cancer, ovarian cancer, uterine cancer, vaginal and vulvar cancers, with cervical cancer being by far the most common. Almost all cases of cervical cancer are caused by high-risk strains of the human papillomavirus, also known as HPV, which is, you guessed it, sexually transmitted. Luckily, cervical cancer is also one of the only cancer types that allows for screening and detection in the early stages of cellular change, before cancer develops. The Australian screening program has been extremely successful at reducing rates of cervical cancer. They're half what they were before the introduction of the pap test in 1991. The new national cervical screening program, which replaces the traditional pap test with the HPV test, has potential to be even more effective. To find out more about cervical cancer and HPV, we spoke to gynecological oncologist Dr Rhonda Farrell and Professor Basil Donovan, who is our own research staff specialist at Sydney Sexual Health Centre, as well as the head of the Sexual Health Program at the Kirby Institute. Oh, thank you, Heather. Yes, my name's Rhonda Farrell. Um, I'm a gynaecological oncologist, one of 47 of us in Australia, um, and I'm currently based at Randwick. And um, a gynaecological oncologist is someone who looks after women with gynaecological cancer or all those w women who are at risk of gynaecological cancers. And um, these are cancers of um, organs such as the uterus, the ovaries and the, and the fallopian tubes and the cervix, so they obviously only occur in women. And these sorts of cancers make up about 10% of all cancers in women. Um, we're primarily the surgeons that operate on women who have these cancers or are at risk of these cancers, but we also have many other roles, and, and they're important roles, and they include coordinating the overall care of women with these cancers, making sure that they receive other treatments they might, might need um, after their surgery, and we follow them up, many of them lifelong, to detect if they have side effects of their treatment or whether they are, um, have any recurrence of their cancers and make sure that they get the best treatment possible. But we don't work alone. We work with... Um, our team members in a multidisciplinary team, which includes other doctors such as medical oncologists and radiation oncologists, as well as many nurses, pathologists, geneticists and other health professionals who do look after women with these sorts of cancers. So as most of our listeners will be aware, there's recently been some changes to cervical screening in Australia. Can you explain what these changes are? Yeah, look, this is very exciting for us. Um, up until December in 2017, women in Australia had pap smears, as you know, um, every two years from the, from the age of 18 um, to, to look for abnormal cells of the cervix. Um, and we realised um, a number of years ago that there was increasing evidence that precancers and cancers of the cervix were due to a virus called HPV, which is short, to hum short for human papillomavirus, which is, which is a wart virus. And there are many strains of this wart virus, but a number of, of them, about 13 of them, are quite 
quite high risk and can cause cancers of the cervix and the vagina and the vulva. So we now have a test called the cervical screening test which detects these high-risk viruses. It is done the same way as the old pap smear. So when you see a GP, they'll, they'll put a speculum in the vagina and take a sample of the cells from the cervix. But it's much more accurate at predicting whether there's a virus there. If that, that, those cells um, or that fluid shows the virus, then the pathologist will, will then look for any abnormal cells on that sample. Um, and in a number of cases, um, if there is a high-risk virus or if there are quite abnormal cells, that, that lady will then be sent for a colposcopy with a specialist. Um, as you know, we've been vaccinating young women and now young men since 2007 against the two highest risk strains, HPV 16 and 18, and already we've seen a drop-off in the number of precancers and cancers, so it's actually very effective. Unfortunately, as you know, not all, not all people are vaccinated for a number of reasons, and certainly not all women undergo screening. Um, so, but we think, it, and we know that it will be a much better way of detecting women with precancers and cancers of the cervix, and we expect over time the number of those will drop, drop down in numbers. So cervical screening in Australia has been extremely successful in reducing rates of cervical cancer, but cervical cancer remains the 14th most commonly diagnosed cancer among women, and it's the 19th most common cause of cancer death. There are around 930 new cases of cervical cancer diagnosed each year, and it accounts for over 250 annual deaths. Can you explain what's happening with these women? Why are their cancers not being caught and treated earlier? Yeah, you're right, Heather. Um, Australia does have one of the best screening programs in the world, and we're very proud of that. So um, we also have one of the lowest rates of cervical cancer in the world. Those numbers that you said do sound very high, and they shouldn't be because it, it is a preventable disease, but in developing countries, um, it is the commonest cause of death in young women, unfortunately, cervical cancer, because they don't have a good screening program like we do. Um, unfortunately, even though we have a very good screening program, not all women participate in the screening program. Or they might start, but they don't stick to the recommended schedule. And they're the ones that fall through the, the cracks, really, and develop precancers and cancers of the cervix. Um, there are a number of reasons why, why they don't participate in the program, and, and those reasons include embarrassment, embarrassed to go to their doctor and ask um, for a screening test or to be examined, fear of pain or discomfort. Um, they might have had a bad experience with a screening test. Um, or they might forget, forget to have it and they get lost to the reminder system. There are also a number of women that live in isolated areas and in populations such as the Aboriginal population in, in country areas that don't participate in the screening program. Um, also, you'd be surprised to know, but some women, after they have their children and get to their late 50s and 60s, don't think they need screening anymore. And that's not true. They should continue that until they're, they're at least 70. Um, so the most important thing here, I think, is that these women need to find a healthcare provider, either a doctor or a nurse, that they feel comfortable with and trust and that they communicate with. And if the English is not very good, they either take someone with them that can help them communicate or the, the healthcare provider can access the um, translation you know, services that we have. Um, the other cancers that have in the past been difficult to detect are the glandular cancers and they make up about 15% of all cervical cancers and the reason why that is is the pap smear, the old pap smear, the brush couldn't really reach these cancers because they're up in the canal of the cervix. Um, now, that, now we know that these cancers are also due to HPV almost always, so we hope that the new screening test will be better at detecting these pre-cancers before they turn into cancers. Um, also, there's now a self-test test kit that 
can be offered to women. Um, this is a kit where they can actually insert the, the little brush um, or the um, instrument that detects the HPV into their own vagina. And we're hoping that might encourage some women to participate in the screening program. It is really, there's a strict criteria that these women um, can, can access this. They do need to go and see their health provider to get this kit, so their doctor, um, their GP, um, and they need to be over the age of 30. Um, they need to either have never had a screening test or they, they haven't participated in the screening program for at least two years. Um, but that should help us get some of these women that really don't want to come to their doctor for a PAPS or for a, a screening test to participate in the screening program. So if somebody has not been participating in a screening program and they, their HPV infection has been missed and they do develop cancer, what symptoms are they likely to experience? Yeah, look, unfortunately the symptoms do occur late um, and as you say, most women will already have an early cancer who get symptoms because pre-cancers are asymptomatic and the whole role of screening is to pick them up before they become symptomatic. But unfortunately, if they, they do develop a cancer, they may present with symptoms such as irregular bleeding, particularly postcoital bleeding after sex, um, an abnormal ongoing vaginal discharge between periods, unexplained pelvic pain, particularly if it occurs during, during sex, um, and um, these women, you know, even if they present to their GP and they've had a recent normal screening test, should still be examined um, and, and retested because they are now symptomatic, so they're outside the screening program. So even if they don't meet the criteria, such as the younger than 25, when the screening program now starts, or they're older women who have had a, or a woman who's had a recent normal screening test, should still be examined and undergo um, a thin prep. Um, test of their cervix and HPV test. So how can health professionals help reduce cervical cancer rates? What should they be looking for and what should they be doing? So I think the most important thing here, Heather, is educating women on the importance of having regular screening tests from the age of 25. Um, and when they attend their GP or healthcare provider for something else, such as a sore throat or a flu, it's a perfect opportunity for, for that healthcare provider to ask when their last cervical screening test was. And if it was outside of the usual schedule to perform it on that day, um, take the, the initiative to have it right at that point of care. Um, and this is particularly important for those that are underscreened, such as, you know, migrant women, um, women with English as a, as a second language, Aboriginal women and older women. Um, and women up to the age of 74 um, should be screened. And, and it's interesting, between the age of 70 and 74, women should be given an exit test, which is the cervical screening test. And then if we know that that's negative, they can then exit the screening program. Um, there's a ops, lots of opportunities for healthcare providers to have information in their rooms when patients come to see them, you know, some pamphlets and wall charts that are provided by the National Screening Program that they can put up. And patients um, are interested in that and often read it when they're sitting there, obviously waiting for their appointments. For women who are embarrassed, particularly if they have a male GP, for example, and they're embarrassed to ask them, um, then it might help to have practice nurses who are available to do those things at the time so that, so that the, the women aren't, um, are more likely to, to participate in having a cervical screening test. And the other way, way I think healthcare providers can, can help is, even though the National Screening Registry does remind women by sending them reminders, some women fall through the net, they move or they move on to um, have different addresses. Um, so a, a good reminder system through the doctor's um, you know, um, booking system 
Um, and often the digital programs now have a, a way of doing that quite easily to remind women when they're due um, would also help to get women um, to maintain them in the usual schedule for screening. So if a patient has a positive screening test, what is the correct course of action for their clinician? Yeah, it depends what that screening test result shows. Of course, if they have symptoms, then they should be referred to a specialist, and I mentioned those before, abnormal bleeding and discharge or unexplained pain. But if they don't have those symptoms and they are in the screening program, if they have a cervical screening test that shows a high-risk virus, HPV 16 and 18, and those two viruses are responsible for 80%, 70 to 80% of all cervical cancers, that's an indication to refer them directly to, for a colposcopy, um, to a colposcopy service, which are available in the public hospital systems and, and the private hospital system. If they have an intermediate risk virus and they've been undergoing normal screening and they haven't previously had an abnormal test, then they, so if they don't have HPV 16 or 18, but they have one of the other, what we call high risk viruses, but in fact they're intermediate risk because they're not as high risk as the other. 16 and 18, they would then um, come back in a year to have a repeat screening test. Um, but that, those patients that have that intermediate virus, they, their, their fluid is also looked at in a thin prep or liquid cytology. And if that shows a high, a high um, risk squamous um, lesion, um, quite abnormal cells, then they should be directly for, referred for colposcopy. So what would you say is the most important thing that health professionals need to know about gynecological cancers? Yeah, Heather, I th think the most important thing, like many cancers, is that they're really non-discriminating. They affect all women, um, apart from very young women, of course, who haven't been um, exposed to HPV. Um, but generally, gynaecological cancers can affect really, really any age group. So for cervical cancer, as I said, it, it affects women who are underscreened and don't have the vaccination. For endometrial cancer, the biggest risk factor in Australia and other developed countries is in obesity because that um, increases your risk of developing cancers of the lining of the womb due to high estrogen levels and um, other fats and lipids in the body. So if you um, have abnormal bleeding um, and you are a little overweight, you are at high risk of having endometrial cancer and you certainly should see, see your GP to have a workup for that. Um, some cancers, there's a strong family history of things like breast and ovarian cancer. So in some women who um, have mothers or grandmothers um, um, or aunts on the either their mother's or father's side of the family who have had breast or, and or ovarian cancer, and particularly if they're, if they're of Ashkenazi Jewish descent, they might carry the breast and ovarian cancer gene. Um, and those women, um, if they meet um, that risk level, um, should be referred to the genetic cancer clinic at the local hospital to undergo some, some um, assessment to see if they should be offered testing for that genetic mutation that might run in the family. There's also ovarian cancers that are associated with a strong family history of bowel cancer called Lynch syndrome. And um, I think GPs are much more aware of these genetic or hereditary cancers now and are more likely to ask patients their family history of cancer. And then if they think they're at risk, and there are certainly lots of information on the Cancer Australia website about hereditary cancers and who should be referred for further counselling with the hereditary cancer teams. That was gynaecological oncologist Dr Rhonda Farrell. We also spoke to our own Professor Basil Donovan, who heads the Sexual Health Program at the Kirby Institute, as well as being one of our sexual health physicians at Sydney Sexual Health Centre. I'm uh, 
Basil Donovan, uh, Professor of Sexual Health and a Sexual Health and Public Health Physician based at the Kirby Institute, University of New South Wales. And uh, uh, I'm engaged in sort of a fairly broad spectrum of research on HPV and HPV-related diseases in both uh, men and women. So we're talking about gynecological cancers with a special emphasis on cervical cancer. Mm -hmm. Cervical cancer rates have halved since the introduction of cervical screening to Australia over 20 years ago, and we now have another weapon in our arsenal, the HPV vaccine, which has been administered in schools since 2007. Can you tell us what the impact of the vaccination program has been so far? Yeah, we got a very rapid response at a population level to the vaccination program. Um, the earliest indication, clinical indication of the effectiveness of the vaccine was the reduction in genital warts. And that decline in youngest, the youngest women, that is the most highly vaccinated population, is about 96%, which is pretty extraordinary considering the coverage is only about 80%. And the reason for that is that those, um, those Vaccinated girls are protecting young men who aren't, who aren't getting infected by the target uh, HPV types, uh, who are in turn protecting the unvaccinated women. We call that a herd protection. Um, now, since 2013, we've added uh, schoolboys to the vaccination program as well for the reason that um, through our genital wart surveillance, we determined that that gay men were not getting any protection um, from, the, from the female only vaccination program. And we're now starting to see the first cohorts of young gay men coming through the clinics and we're measuring the prevalence of HPV in those men. Uh, we've done repeated cross-sectional studies of HPV prevalence, particularly the vaccine target types, and noted a marked reduction of the target HPV types in young women, and uh, we expect to start documenting the same in young men in the near future. Uh, other outcomes have been that um, since the vaccination program, the number of young women with high-grade cervical abnormalities, which is the precursor to cancer of the cervix, has been steadily dropping and more, uh, has more than halved. Now that will translate into a halving of the incidence of cervical cancer by about 50% over the course of about 30 to 40 years. That's incredible. Yeah. <clears throat> and there is a, there's another nasty HPV-related disease called juvenile onset recurrent respiratory papillomatosis. I won't ask you to remember how to say that, otherwise known as JORP. And uh, <clears throat> since the vaccination program, that it, it's a nasty condition with wart-like lesions in the respiratory tract of um, small children. Uh, average age of onset's about age three. And it re <coughs> results in multiple surgical interventions, on average at least, uh, the liver endoscopies to um, ablate the lesions and maintain the airway in the children. So it is, it is a nasty disease. And one of the great things that's been observed is that it's practically disappeared as a disease in Australia. Um, and the only cases that ever happen are seen with, in unvaccinated mothers. 
So the impacts of the vaccination program haven't just been on the gynecological cancers that we're talking about today. No, no, and we we expect down the track <coughs> to see quite a drop in um, oropharyngeal cancers caused by the same HPV types. Something that we've touched on on this podcast previously is that the majority of sexually active adults acquire at least one variety of HPV over their lifetime, but most people clear the virus from their bodies within a year or two and don't experience any harm or complications from the infection. Are there any particular risk factors that make one person develop a chronic infection that leads to cancer while somebody else might clear the virus spontaneously? A good question. Um, the persistence and uh, cancer-causing potential is determined somewhat by which exactly which type. So the nastiest type is HPV-16 and um, <clears throat> the second nastiest is HPV-18. Um, I don't know, they, HPV-16 will tend to go on to cause cancer the quickest and has the highest likelihood of causing cancer. There are cofactors such as um, smoking, which is not a good thing. Um, uh, other than that, we're not really sure what the host factors are that help some people clear, or most people clear the viruses, um, and well, a few percent don't. We don't really understand that genetically. So we noted earlier that access to cervical screening is higher in high socioeconomic status areas and lower in low socioeconomic status areas. Interestingly, this disparity is less significant for uptake of the HPV vaccine. Could the vaccine program narrow the gap in cervical cancer outcomes between women from higher and lower socioeconomic backgrounds? I think very much so. It's, um, this is a certainly one of the most tangible demonstrations of uh, closing the gap because um, Aboriginal women get um, cervical cancer at a much higher rate than non-Aboriginal women and uh, and it tends to be at a much more advanced stage when it's diagnosed so they do much uh, do quite poorly but uh, the vaccination program has been administered through schools and uh, with little catch-ups in the community and having the school programs and public health nurses out there uh, has resulted in um, excellent coverage in ab Aboriginal communities, including remote Aboriginal communities, and we've been able to document in the case of um, genital warts that they have experienced a similar drop in the incidence of genital warts as the non-Aboriginal population. And that's something you're expecting to um, extend into cervical cancer diagnoses? Yeah, we're taking that as a marker that they're going to experience similar protection uh, against cervical and other gynecological cancers, and, which is a terrific thing because um, uh, if if they don't even get infected, then you know the, the failure to screen becomes less of an issue. So, if the vaccination is so good, does this mean that health professionals don't need to be conducting cervical screening anymore? No, no, we've had. We've overhauled the screening program. Previously, um, the pap smear program was relied on cytology, looking at a sort of 19th century test where you looked at the cells and looked for changes suggestive of uh, early changes, early moves towards cancer. Unfortunately, it's a relatively insensitive test, such and so we had to do it often. We were doing it every two years. 
uh, in fact, not very long ago, we were doing it every year, which is horrendously expensive. And doing a bad test repeatedly is never a good strategy. Um, so as of um, the end of 2017, we bought in primary screening with HPV testing. So basically, uh, a swab is collected, um, rather like the old pap smear procedure, uh, though you can actually uh, use, uh, they're a bit less sensitive, but you can use self-collected specimens from, uh, particularly for rarely screened or you know, very reluctant women who don't like the pap smear process. Um, and that, we're starting that later because we don't want to test whether people ever get infected with HPV. We want to detect whether people have a persistent infection. So we're not starting that program before the age of 25. And it will only be done once every five years. Now, there'll be quite an argument in a decade or two once the bulk of the female population of Australia is vaccinated that we may even only do it once every 10 years or even two or three times in a lifetime. Um, because it just becomes redundant. But we still need to keep screening because the current the new vaccine brought in this year covers for nine, uh, mo nine of the most common HPV types, but that would only account, that will account for about 90% of cervical cancers, but not 100%. So there's still a, that residual risk of um, HPV-related cervical cancer due to a non-target HPV type. So no, we can't just stop screening. So just to wrap up, mm. what would you say is the single most important thing that health professionals need to know about HPV vaccination? The single most important thing uh, that it's that this is deemed by the World Health Organization to be officially a very safe vaccine. Um, it's one of the most effective vaccines ever invented uh, and it doesn't seem to sh be showing any signs of fading in, in its efficacy so there doesn't seem to be any need for boosting. Uh, even when, uh, when antibodies fade out after 10 years or so, uh, women don't seem to get infected uh, and that's been shown with H HPV-16. Um, so it protects against infection even though laboratory tests suggest that it might be fading. Um, so there are other catch-up programs which we should encourage, you know, refugees and migrant women are eligible for vaccination. Um, so, and some people may have missed, for whatever reason, may have missed out on the vaccination early on. So try and catch up wherever you can. That was Dr. Rhonda Farrell and Professor Basil Donovan discussing cervical cancer and HPV for Gynecological Cancer Awareness Month. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Sexual Health Centre podcast. Remember, if you want to hear more from us, share this podcast around your friends and colleagues and keep your eye out for our next episode.